topic of our Dhamma talk this evening is contemplating the nature of arising or contemplating the nature of passing away or contemplating both the nature of arising and passing away. And the subtitle of our talk this evening is some basic aspects of the Satipatthana Sutta. Now, the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the establishment of mindfulness, is uh, probably the most important discourse, uh, most important uh, foundation for the practice that we're doing here together. And some of you will be familiar with it, uh, some of you might uh, have uh, read it uh, maybe a few times, many times, and certainly uh, some of you might not be familiar with it at all. Now, just like with many other uh, discourses given by uh, the Buddha, the Satipatthana Sutta is uh, structured in a very systematic manner. And as Satna Venerable Analayu has pointed out in his Satna book, Satipatthana, there is Satna first, Satna the introduction part, and Satna in this Satna part, the, uh, it gets Satna stated uh, um, where uh, this Satna discourse was given, namely in the land of the Gurus at uh, a town of the town of the Kuru people, namely Kamasa Dhamma. And uh, it so happened that Satna the Buddha and a group of Satna disciples were um, staying there. And the Buddha then addressed Satna, his Satna monastic disciples, and Satna then they said, Venerable Sir, or Yes, Venerable Sir, and then the Buddha started giving the discourse. Now, the the second part of the discourse, you might refer to it as the preamble, contains, uh, uh, well, the main benefits to be obtained from this practice. And among you know, those, there are seven in number, and certainly those are you know, this practice of mindful of the establishment of mindfulness will lead you know, to you know, the purification of the mind. It will lead to the overcoming of sorrow and certainly lamentation. It will lead certainly to the destruction of physical pain, dukkha, as well as mental distress, and certainly further it would lead to the entering of the right path as until the final major benefit is the realization of Nibbana. Now, a question to you. Are there only seven benefits to the Satipatthana practice? Is that all? Have we come for this? Hmm? 
There are seven benefits as the most major, given as the most major benefits, but apart from those, there are so many others. And many other benefits Satnya then said we will gradually discover in the course of Satnya this retreat as well as outside of Satnya retreat. Now, this Satnya first Satnya preamble also, the first preamble then is followed by uh, what Satna Venerable Analaya has Satna referred to as the definition part. And so, um, this part gives you the gist of uh, the Satipatthana instructions. And now, to give you that part um, so that you've heard it at least once. Here, a retreatant dwells contemplating the body and the body ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having removed covetousness and uh, discontent for the world or in regard to the world. One dwells contemplating feelings in feelings, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having removed covetousness and discontent in regard to the world. One dwells contemplating the mind, in the mind, ardent, clearly comprehending and uh, that mindful, having removed covetousness and discontent for the world or in regard to the world. And then the last Satna part is when dwells contemplating Dhammas in Dhammas, again ardent or in other words with effort, and Satna then clearly comprehending Sampajanya with uh, uh, mindful and having removed covetousness and discontent in regard to the world. Now, what follows then is a description of the four establishments of mindfulness. So, the contemplation of the body, Kaya Nupasana Satipatthana, followed by the contemplation of feelings, followed by contemplation of uh, the mind, and lastly, contemplation of the Dhammas. Now, the contemplation of Fatna, the body, then gets subdivided into various or into very specific uh, exercises, such as a mindful contemplation of breathing, then a mindful contemplation of postures, then of uh, activities, clear comprehension of activities, then um, contemplation of the uh, f the parts of uh, the body and satna then um, a contemplation of the elements and finally a contemplation of uh, uh, a corpse in uh, various stages of decay this each of these sub aspects of 
Gaia Nupasna Satipatthana then are followed by what Venerable Analayu calls the refrain, namely a paragraph that is identical, that contains the same mm, message, but adapted to the respective exercise that that has been just uh, given. So, in the case of the, let's say, contemplation of breathing, in this way, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, or one abides contemplating the body externally, or one abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of the arising in the nature of arising in the body, or one abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, or one abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. And the title is derived from this particular uh, passage, title of our Dhamma talk. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in the retreat and to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. One abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body. So this refrain you can then find after each exercise in mindfulness. This then is certainly followed by a description of how to do the mindful contemplation of feelings, then of the mind, and then when it comes to contemplation of dhammas, namely phenomena, or simply dhammas, to leave the term untranslated, this then gets further subdivided into a mindful contemplation of the hindrances of the five aggregates, the six sense spheres, the seven enlightenment factors, and finally the four noble truths. Now, Having given the instructions this far, the Buddha gradually comes to a conclusion by making a prediction of what will happen to a retreatant who will follow these instructions and will meditate seriously, wholeheartedly. And so it says a retreatant who practices these four establishments of mindfulness for a period of seven years is bound to experience one out of two things, namely the realization of the Dhamma, also the final final realization of Arahantship, and if this is not certainly possible as yet, and some 
some desire remains, then one is guaranteed to reach at least anagamihood, namely um, non-return. And certain, then the, con- the prediction continues. Mm, if one were to con- to practice for six years, this will happen for five, for four, three, two, one years, uh, one year. And certain, then, mm, if one were to practice for uh, eleven months, certain, and uh, ten months, and so on, six months, and then all the way down uh, to one uh, week. And that prediction section is followed by another, um, by the preamble, namely stating the benefits to be gained by this mindfulness practice. And then finally, there's the conclusion. So just to give you, I'm mentioning all of this, just certainly for you to have a framework that you can then relate to and certainly the two passages that have been quoted now are part of this certain framework. Now, when we take a first general look at these instructions on mindfulness satna meditation then we might certainly find that a careful mindful contemplation of various parts of a human being are being recommended so basically, what Satna we have here could be termed as analysis, a mindful, mm, contemplative analysis of what is actually happening, of what mm, we ordinarily refer to as an individual or a being. So to so for a retreatant to look at various aspects connected to the body, to look at this whole range of feelings of consciousness and mental factors that rise together with consciousness, and then finally various Dhamma aspects. Now, to give you an illustration in this regard, it is nothing other than to come for the first time to the Taos ski valley and suddenly then one tries to find out what this place is all about. So, what's the nature of Taos ski valley? Is this a mining town or as the name indicates a ski resort or is it maybe also a summer vacation for those who don't want to ski? Then, what about the population here? What's the population figure? What's the distribution of the population? What about the resident population? What about certain of those who come here for skiing and certain for hiking and so on and so forth? Then, um, 
what about certain of the layout, certain of the town? Is it done in a very systematic manner? What about the architectural style of this place? What about the history of this place? And then what about the surrounding, the elevation? Can you think of anything else? There's so many things that we could endeavor you know, to find out you know, with regard to a place uh, known as Tao Ski Valley. Same thing with uh, what is known a human being. Now, we happen to be human beings, but do we really understand ourselves fully or not? Do we? Nada, what do you think? Yes? No? Absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. So, since there is much room for uh, discovery, the Buddha has recommended uh, uh, those four uh, establishments of mindfulness. Contemplating the nature of arising in the body, contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, or both. The term that is very important in this context is the term contemplating. In the Pali scriptural language, the corresponding verb would be anupasati, and anupasati is related to the noun anupasana. And when we look at putting this term in uh, a Pali English dictionary, the dictionary might certainly give us you know, words such as contemplation, looking at, viewing, or repeated observation. And that term repeated observation does seem to fit quite well, especially if we look at the further explanations of Anupasana offered in the text. Now, the Visuddhimagga in one passage explains it as Satna follows, namely Anu and Pasati, two parts. Pasati means he, she, it sees. Anu implies mm, a repeated action and Satna furthermore in diverse ways. So, a repeated and diverse observation of Fatna some object. Observing an object from different angles, as Venerable Analayo has pointed out. Now, the Visuddhimagga then summarizes certain this, and it says, one sees always accordingly, anu anupasati, and the meaning therefore of thereof is, one sees again and again, 
in various modes. Hence, it is said one contemplates. Now, I would say in the English language, there is an identity between the two words contemplation and repeated observation. So what we do here in the meditation practice is nothing other than again and again, time and again, looking at familiar objects such as The bottom of the feet, yes. Anything else? What's that? Tension in the head. Oh, tension in the head. Anything else that comes up for you, Max? Rising and falling movement of the abdomen. Sure enough. And? Anyone else? Is that all? Thinking. Thinking. Oh, this must be a popular one among some of you. So, from the very beginning of our mindfulness practice until the very end of it, and basically our mindfulness practice ends when we pass away, we will be observing the same set of predominant objects. However, we will see them in the course of uh, this one-month retreat, in the course of several years or many years, we will see those objects in many different ways. And so the objects present themselves to the observing mind in different ways. Now, since we are looking at general and fundamental aspects of the Satipatthana uh, practice, during the first few days of a retreat, retreatants are likely to see the specific qualities of objects. So, to see in the one rising movement of the abdomen, tension, tightness, stiffness, expansion, then in the case of the fawning movement of the abdomen, to see specific sensations such as a release of tension, release of stiffness, tightness, maybe a sense of relaxation, ease, contraction, and so on and so forth. So, this particular aspect of seeing the specific qualities of objects is referred to in the Pali scripture language as Sabawa Lakana. And this, however, is not going to be the prevalent mode forever. After a few days of intensive practice, retreatants or, or the Mm, the focus of attention, of observation, will then start falling onto a slightly different aspect. Namely, having mm, discerned various specific objects for a while, one then starts to see certain aspects that are common to uh, all objects. And 
very simple aspects, such as all objects have a middle portion. In other words, you could call it all objects have an occurrence. They are present for a while and they might undergo uh, changes. Now, is that all? Is that the only way we experience objects? Just being there. What else might come up? What else might, might we discover? Well, in line with you know, the topic of our talk, one might discover there is an arising to an object. And then there is an arising also to a second object and to a third object. And suddenly there are so many arisings, which means the mind then is certainly not only specializing in seeing the occurrence of an object, but it suddenly then discovers also there's a beginning of an object. Now, having explored this particular aspect, and in Pali the technical term for this is Sankata Lakana, the characteristic of um, of the conditioning of objects. And Satya then we are likely to explore yet a different aspect, namely the aspect that is, or aspects that are universal to all formations. And uh, those are very simple things, namely that formations undergo change, that those formations uh, that keep changing are uh, therefore unsatisfactory. We would rather have them um, be more permanent and sub especially pleasant experiences. And suddenly then having seen the, the change in formations and that they are unsatisfactory sooner or later, we might realize that formations actually lack a self or are not you know, identical with a self. In the course of our mindfulness practice, we are likely to experience formations in many different ways. These are just a few you know, ways you know, f in order to you know, give you some examples. So to see the nature of arising in the body, to see the nature of the passing away in the body, and then to see both of those is nothing other than to see what? Hmm? 
very simple to see the impermanence of formations. Now, there are different aspects or different levels of understanding that are possible with regard to impermanence. At first, our understanding of impermanence will be somewhat superficial. So we see some changes in a rising movement, in a falling movement, and also with regard to other objects. Later on, this understanding will become much deeper. Now, if one experiences a wonderful mental state of happiness or contentment and it's really far out and one really wants to hold on and to experience it some more however impermanence certainly does what it's supposed to do namely brings about a change, and that happiness, that profound contentment goes, then this might not be, or this certainly might be a bit disappointing. Now, when we gradually realize that we're growing older, which is just another aspect of impermanence, this too might not be all that uh, wonderful and might be somewhat disappointing. Now, we all tend to have a sense of self, me, so-and-so. There's a name to it, there's a biography, autobiography that goes along with it. Now, if in the course of deep meditation we see, and that, certain, and that self is you know, taken to be, to have much substance and to be permanent, and we then see how that self at times falls apart or is not even present, then what about the mental reaction? Will we, will we be joyous and up and dancing? Probably not. So, contemplating the nature of arising in the body and the nature of passing away in the body and both is a way of understanding impermanence in a comprehensive manner and also over time developing equanimity towards this particular aspect. Now, equanimity will not be there right away. This is something that we have to work for and that will gradually then arise. 
So, one of the benefits of contemplating you know, this arising power, the nature of the arising passing of Fertner formations, is a better understanding of Fertner impermanence and you know, then uh, dealing with it in an equanimous way. There's yet another benefit that could be ascribed to this particular mm, uh, fundamental way of contemplating. Namely, if one keeps seeing that bodily as well as mental formations keep changing, may then bring a new view with regard to those bodily and mental formations. So we realize they are rather, they are impermanent rather than being permanent. So formations are seen as somewhat fleeting. Now it does not end there. When our practice has gone pretty deep, we might certainly realize that the observing and knowing mind is what? Permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. impermanent. So what you have then is something that is impermanent itself, namely the observing and knowing mind, is observing objects that are equally impermanent and continuously changing. So this then that makes for a huge number of possible um, connections or possible conditions. So if one sees that both the object observed as well as the observing and knowing mind are fundamentally impermanent, then this might change our view of ourselves. So as long as we're holding on to you know, a notion of a self, usually a sense of permanence goes along with it. And for the most part, people think that certainly this observing and knowing part of us is pretty permanent, is pretty solid. We can rely on this. And now we find out this is not the case. So what happens is the substantiality, as Venerable Analayo is certainly pointing out, that certainly then uh, vanishes. The contemplation of Fatna, the nature of the arising of formations in the body and Fatna, the nature of the passing away in Fatna, the body has the potential, if Fatna developed sufficiently, to lead a retreat into the realization of the first path of enlightenment to the second, to the third, and even to the fourth level of enlightenment. So all the way to 
to the final goal. Oh, I'm saying that this certain contemplation of impermanence can um, lead or has the potential to lead a retreat and um, at least certain to the realization of the first path of uh, uh, enlightenment, namely stream entry, as well as uh, to you know, the second, the third, and uh, the fourth uh, level of uh, enlightenment. So in other words, this form of contemplation carries the highest potential. Now, having seen time and again that formations are not permanent, one can no longer believe in permanence. Permanence then is certainly just a concept and certainly not very uh, meaningful. Now, in our in the gist of certain of the meditation instructions as certainly given in the definition part of the Satipatthana Sutta, it says, and this is very uh, typical or, or uh, very distinctive feature, it says to contemplate the body in the body, feelings in feelings, and certainly then the mind in the mind, and dhammas in dhammas. So, there's a certain meaning that Satna the Buddha tried to bring across with this a bit unusual way of expressing things. Now, usually, when we or oftentimes when we contemplate a bodily you know, formation, you know, let's you know, say you know, some uh, pain, some intense certain you know, pain, then um, we might uh, get certainly carried away by memories. Memories of um, a similar experience you know, contemplation of a you know, different pain maybe you know, three years ago in a different retreat. Now, that is not certain what the Buddha had in mind, but rather when a bodily formation is predominant that we give full focus of onto that bodily formation, at least for the time you know, being that we observe that bodily you know, formation, that pain, that you know, we concentrate on that and to the exclusion of memories and certain other unrelated things. If at some other point in our you know, practice, and could be at the in the same sitting, 
the most predominant object happens to be a feeling, so a pleasant, unpleasant, or a neutral feeling, then we will want to give full attention to that particular feeling at the exclusion of other new things, at the exclusion of mixing in mm, of thoughts or you know, mixing in mm, you know, certain mental states or mixing in some bodily formation. Now, when a mental, when the mind, so consciousness in association with a particular mental state is predominant. And in the text, when one knows that the mind arises together or in association with certain greed, then one knows just that, and one observes just that, and not mixed in with other things. The same thing goes for the contemplation of, let's say, a certain Dhamma aspect. So, when the hindrances one or all of the hindrances are predominant, then one's attention is fully on those certain hindrances to the exclusion of other things. So to the exclusion of feelings, to the exclusion of bodily formations. So it's one thing at a time. Now, it's worth highlighting you know, this point because as retreatants we do not necessarily practice mm, that satna way. And satna, our observation tends to, as Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi has observed, tends to be cluttered by you know, various other aspects. And satna, so Mm, the mind, you know, the observation needs to be mm, purified of unwanted proliferations. So we want just uh, when a bodily formation is predominant, we want to observe just that bare uh, bodily uh, formation. The same thing would go uh, for feeding and so on and so forth. Now, in the definition part of the Satipatthana Sutta, it says one dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, and having removed, having removed covetousness and discontent in regard to the body. Or another, in the Pali for this is Vinaya Loka Abhija Dhamanasam. And in other words, you know, we try to observe an object free from desires and discontent. Now, Much could be said about you know, this particular 
new instruction not here but I will try to keep it as certain as simple as certain as possible contemplating the body feelings the mind and uh, uh, dhammas does not mean that first off prior to intensive practice prior to these different contemplations that the mind has to be totally purified of covetousness and of discontent. But rather when we actually do observe predominant objects that we do so without certain uh, that mental reactivity without uh, you know, those desires and uh, uh, discontent in regard to the world in regard to you know, the formations that come up in the in the body and in the mind or in the aggregates now an untrained mind has the tendency you know, to go from one extreme to the other, namely from liking to disliking, from disliking back to liking, and so on. When we come across a desirable object, the mind will like it. When we come across some undesirable object, disliking will be there. And this may happen thousands of times. And it's rather exhausting. And it's a rather unskillful, useless pattern of the mind. So, even though we may not have attained complete freedom from, from covetousness and then or sense desire, and discontent in regard to the world, yet we can make an attempt at observing objects relatively within with a mind that is relatively and temporarily free from desires and discontent. And if at times we, you know, when we observe an object and we realize there is some desire there, there is some disliking there, some discontent there, then we might take that very you know, desire um, and that very discontent itself as an object of observation and certainly then um, in applying mindfulness to Mm, you know, those sudden states they might at least temporarily subside so ideally we want to observe objects with a mind that is non-reactive that accepts objects as they come whether we like them or not without any preferences without uh, uh, ignoring um, unpleasant formations and preferring pleasant formations
Now, another fundamental aspect that comes up in the refrain, the so-called refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta is Satya that of observing objects without identifying with them. So without Satya identification. Now what does this mean? Let's say happiness comes up and and immediately the mind identifies certain with it and certain then maybe thinks or uh, relates to the happiness as my happiness. That's me. That certain happiness you know, uh, is part of me that uh, determines my uh, personality or my being, whatever. <coughs> or when at other times, let's say, sadness has arisen in the mind, and then and the sadness becomes quite certain, predominant, quite strong, even quite intense. And then an identification with it might take place and we take it to be my sadness. I'm so sad. I'm totally overwhelmed by the, the sadness. Now, identification is the opposite of disidentification. Now, disidentification means that when happiness has arisen in the stream of consciousness, it's just another object of observation. That's all. We just focus our attention to it, onto it, we observe it in an objective manner. We know its nature, we know, you know the nature of its arising, of its passing away, and that's it. In the case of the sadness, it's the same thing. We don't relate to it as my sadness, but rather as just another object, just another mental state, and we observe it in a rather detached manner, objective manner. Now, it is so easy for a teacher to talk about identification. But for a retreatant not to get identified in the actual practice with certain bodily states or mental states, that part is difficult. Can at times can be very difficult. Now The way the instructions, and quite a number of the instructions have been phrased in the Satipatthana the Sutta, as well as uh, other uh, relevant uh, discourses, allows Satna uh, to conclude 
that the Buddha you know, did encourage labeling. And this um, uh, uh, can be derived from the Pali uh, word iti at the end of a quote. Now, when we start labeling objects, then this labeling will bring about a certain or, or will break up the identification with an object to some extent. And so if one sits there and experiences this far out uh, contentment, happiness, one feels on one feels like being on top of you know, the world and is totally indulging in it. And one then you know, remembers the instruction to label the predominant experience. So one does this, so, and so one labels as contentment, as happiness, as well-being, as certain feeling like being on top of you know, the world. That immediately brings about a certain disidentification. It certainly brings about a certain distance between what is happening and certainly then the observing and knowing mind. Now, the labeling will help in different ways. It will help to strengthen our clear recognition of what it is that we are experiencing as well as uh, strengthen our understanding of uh, the object. And as Satna mentioned, it brings about a certain inner detachment and diminishes identification, especially with moods and emotions. Now, on occasion, retreatants find that the labeling, labeling to be somewhat awkward and getting in their way of observation of what is certainly happening. And then may not want to continue with it. And it might certainly say, and that suddenly the labeling, this verbalizing, in the verbalizing, uh, what suddenly happens in one's suddenly practice in verbalizing in the mind, as suddenly somewhat uh, as an obstruction, as uh, uh, a difficulty. Now, the mind tends to be extremely flexible and in experience shows that 
labeling, or in other words, verbalizing, commenting to oneself what one is experiencing right now. So now, uh, now rising movement, and then the fawning movement, and suddenly then a pain, and suddenly this, and suddenly that. This form of verbalizing to oneself what one is experiencing does not really um, conflict with mindfulness practice. So the mind can actually do it. And you can ask any advanced certain retreat and whether labeling is still possible or not, and the person will say yes. Now, there are certain points in the practice when things become very, very refined, and one might then want to discontemporarily discontinue the labeling. This, yes, sure. But overall, generally stating the labeling is possible for the mind. The mind can do it. Now, from an experiential point of view, one can say that the labeling also very much helps to keep the thinking at bay. So if one finds that for a while the mind is overwhelmed by thinking, one doesn't know what to do about it, how to contain it, then to pick up one's labeling to be really firm about it would be a very good way of decreasing the thinking. Actually, scientific research exists that suddenly is saying that labeling, it verbally expressing one's sudden emotions, is an important way to uh, let go of some of those emotionally charged thoughts or mental states. Now, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. For us as certain retreatants, this means however exciting or however devastating an experience might be that comes up, we remain independent and not clinging to anything in the world. Neither clinging to desirable experiences, nor clinging, and at times the mind does this, nor clinging to even undesirable experiences. When at times, let's say our sense of self is very much at stake and the self loses its substantiality, at such a point, for consciousness to hold on to even some unpleasant, undesirable object, this is quite uh, normal. And so, when this happens, not to identify with any formation.
Now, towards the beginning of the retreat, the illustration of uh, a visitor was given who comes to the first uh, for the first time to Taos Ski Valley, and suddenly then Auden takes a look around, wants to find out about Taos, and does an analysis of Taos Ski Valley. And looks at different certain aspects that would characterize certain this certain smaller town. Likewise, when we engage in the contemplation of the body, there's so many different aspects to pay attention to. So the body cannot be fully understood by simply just looking at the breathing. This is an important aspect, yes, but there are other aspects. Now, as human beings, we tend to assume a posture. We're always assuming one posture or another. At nighttime, we'll assume the sleeping posture, the lying posture. And certainly then, when we line up for food, we assume the standing posture, there you go, and not the sitting posture. And then, when it's time for you know, walking meditation, we assume the walking posture. And when it's time for you know, sitting meditation, we assume the sitting posture. Now, much, much could be said, but uh, time... Huh? We're already far beyond, far beyond eight o'clock. Uh, so, we have these time constraints. So, much could be said about uh, the posture itself, but let me uh, limit it to just a few essential aspects. The posture that we're assuming, let's say in sitting, whether we sit perfectly upright or in a slouched manner, in a slumped manner, leaning to this side or that side, or the body is maybe swinging or swaying, um, and uh, whether our posture is stiff or rather relaxed, and suddenly comfortable or not comfortable, there are so many things that could certainly be observed and investigated in the course of our mindful contemplation of the body. You might certainly want, on occasion, might want to pay attention to the connection between the predominant mental state and your posture. So, let's say, when the mind is totally overwhelmed by anger, then what's your posture like? And um, when first anger is there, and this turns suddenly into restlessness, or is accompanied by you know, restlessness, then again, how does that influence your posture? So, there are many things that could be mm, mm, uh, investigated. When you feel afraid, what's your posture like? When courage is present, what's your posture like? Now, 
more could be said on the mindful contemplation of the body, one could certainly speak about certainly the Datu Wawatana, namely an analysis of the of a being into different elements, into the four great elements as or you know, the six elements including consciousness and certainness space but uh, you know, we are running out of time and so uh, that certainly uh, might be uh, mentioned at some other uh, point now allow me to conclude by you know, wishing may this wawatana that we are engaged in namely a careful investigation, a careful analysis into what is actually going on, what we commonly refer to as a human being or as an individual. May that analysis uh, result in the arising of profound insights of a profound of right views, right perceptions, and ultimately may it lead to the realization of at least the first path of enlightenment, namely the path of stream entry. And may this happen uh, hopefully during this very retreat here in the Taos Ski Valley. And this is it for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.